I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. Money is a story, an energy, a source of happiness and well-being, as well as being a source of fear and anxiety. Many of us struggle to see that money is just a means to an end and that the decisions we make and the habits we build around money can change our life and the lives of others. Why are so many of us inhibited when it comes to talking about money? That's what I'd like to explore. Listen as my guests from all walks of life share their stories and how money has impacted their journey. My hope is these shared experiences will help you think differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Money Expresso. How are you? In today's episode, I'm joined by Tom Alubi, OBE, who shares his incredible achievements as a serial entrepreneur, philanthropist and the first black chair of the Rugby Football Union. Now, coming from a mixed race family, Tom speaks about his upbringing, which was spread between London, Uganda and Nigeria, and the resilience and techniques that taught him, which became formative in his business success. He speaks about the racism he faced as a young black man in the 70s and what he calls the long arc of change. He explains how he found himself in computing before most of us knew what they even were and how he has taken his entrepreneurial approach into philanthropy to maximise the impact he can make in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I always have to remind myself. Um, And that's education in STEM, both in the UK and for young women in Africa. He also gives me some wonderful advice about having better philanthropic conversations. Finally, Tom tells me about his vision for rugby in the UK, and in particular the women's game. Now, I should point out that we recorded this conversation in early May, just before it was announced that England would be hosting the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2025. Exciting times. So sit back and enjoy the conversation. Tom, it is a real pleasure to have you as a guest on Money Expresso today. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. No, that's that. Thank you. It's it's. Uh, I've got. I've got. Um, I can't wait to get cracking with our podcast. Actually, because there's so many things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, it, now, Tom, you're a man of so many achievements in the business world, technology, philanthropy, and sport that I think actually uh, we could have a whole podcast series just on your life. Um, but we've only got about forty minutes to really uncover the essence of you. Um, is it possible to distill your journey? into a kind of nutshell, which we may then come back to and, and probe various things as we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could, I could try. Well, I suppose I describe myself as a rugby-loving technology entrepreneur and philanthropist, uh, and that sort of captures the things that I do. Um, my journey has been from corporate life uh, on the technology side to technology entrepreneur, to introducing some philanthropy, uh, sitting on boards, uh, and now for the most part, doing things that I really enjoy, whether it's setting up schools or uh, being chair of the RFU or running my technology company or, or being on boards. I enjoy all of those things. And, and I try to do things now that make me happy. Yes. I and I totally accord with that uh, 
that desire to make make yourself happy um, might be a subject we come back to. Now, of course, I'm tempted to ask, how do you juggle so many things at once? Um, but I'm going to take you zooming back to early memories, if I may. And I listened to uh, your amazing Desert Island Disc, which I would recommend any of our listeners do, do take a listen to. And you talk about... Um, coming from a mixed race family with a, a black dad and a white mom and um, some time that you you spent in, in foster care before rejoining your family. The question that comes to my mind as a, as a, as a financial planner is, you know, what was your earliest memory of money and, and what was money like growing up in your family? It's really interesting. I, I was trying to think back. Um, I didn't have much awareness of money um, probably until I started my paper round. I mean, I suppose my <laughs> earliest awareness of money was, was that being sort of 11 years old or 10 years old or however old I was, um, realising that I needed some pocket money because if I didn't have any pocket money, I wasn't going to be given any, so I might as well go out and look for it. Uh, and uh, getting myself a paper round and actually earning my own money. I can't remember how much it was then, but it, it wasn't very much. I do remember that I was doing one paper round and getting a certain amount, and then somebody told me that there was another paper shop that gave you twice as much money. So I quit the first job, <laughs> went round to the second one. They did give me twice as much money, but they gave me twice as many newspapers uh. to deliver. <laughs> so that's what I, in fact, it was so heavy that I could, <laughs> I could barely stand up. It was, it was that heavy. Um, but uh, that's when I, I worked out that, oh, okay, so you, you get paid <laughs> for the effort you put in. That's, that's an interesting notion. Well, we're going to have to work a bit then. So. That's an, a good early money lesson right there, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's interesting is when I talk to uh, people of um, a similar age group to, to you and I, paper rounds was, was very much a formative job I remember helping my brother and Sundays were a nightmare with the, the, the kind of doubling yeah. up of the newspapers even back then and and so you were earning your own money at a relatively early age do you recall what you did with it Tom? I I bought um, a record my first I think my first purchase that I can remember from my paper round was buying Ballroom Blitz by The Sweet. Uh, so <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so that was my first, yeah, my, my own money buying my own record. <laughs> oh, I bet that felt good. I bet that felt good. Absolutely, yeah. And you, um, you kind of uh, went, um, you, you, your uh, childhood and early adulthood, I believe, was spent between the UK and, and Africa. How, mm. how, how for, for somebody who has barely been outside of the UK other than on holiday, uh, what, what, what did that feel like? It was, um, it was confusing. I mean, it was, it was exciting at times, uh, particularly when I was with my brothers and sisters, which I wasn't all of the time. But so you know, we grew up in, in London, in, uh, in Sunbury, actually, uh, West London, or just, in, just on the outskirts. Um, and then we went to 
um, Uganda in East Africa when I was about seven and spent about three years there because my dad was working over there. Uh, and then we came back from that back to Richmond where, where we lived and where I still live. And then we went off to Nigeria uh, for seven years and then came back again. Um, and it was quite disconcerting to move from one culture to another, one environment to another. I went to a lot of different schools as I was growing up. I, I didn't start and finish ever at the same school. I was always the new boy coming into a school and uh, and finding my feet and getting to know people. And then before we'd uh, finished at that school, I would be off to somewhere else, another country, and starting a new school again. So I think that probably gave me some resilience and probably also some techniques of how to find your way into a new environment, a new culture, how to make friends and uh, how to avoid difficult people and uh, and how to read the room and, uh, mm. and understand how to take things forwards. Really good grounding business skills, I would, I would say on having to navigate all that as a, as a youngster. Yeah, I think so. I think there was always a, quite an entrepreneurial side to me. I mean, I was obviously doing the paper rounds and I was thinking of other things. And when I was at university in Nigeria, I set up a little fashion company. Companies <laughs> are too, too grand a word for it, but uh, <laughs> I hired some tailors and we made trousers and bow ties and I sold them around the university and so forth. And then we wrote a a maths textbook and got hundreds of those printed and sold that. And so I was always doing these kind of entrepreneurial things. And I think there was an element of the way that I grew up making me quite self-sufficient and sort of taking my destiny in my own hands and trying to make things happen. It sounds like it. And was, when you, I mean, I, I love the fact that you, you kind of went from fashion to maths to, <laughs> to, to te technology and was fashion was never going to be your resting place or, or, or could it? <laughs> no, there is no possibility uh, of, of that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a very, uh, a very fashionable person. In fact, I had a, my first ever um, bespoke suit someone someone came around to measure me just a, a few weeks ago and fortunately my wife was there so whenever the person said so Tom what do you like I would turn to my wife and say what do I like <laughs> <laughs> so that's the way we struggled through that so no the fashion thing at university was entirely opportunistic um, I just I just noticed what was going on and how people were buying their trousers and I thought oh I can do that better I can I can get some tailors to make loads of trousers and yeah. sell and make a margin and so forth. How astute I love that spotting the opportunity and then doing something about about it you're um I was intrigued by your LinkedIn profile that, that I, I guess could have been incredibly long winded, but you broadly de describe yourself as a startup guy. Um, <laughs> I, and I really like that idea. And you, you've already kind of um, uh, explained what you mean by that. But how did technology mm. call you? How did, how did that happen? Um, I did physics at university. Yeah, that, that was always my uh, my field and uh, what I what I loved at school, what I was excited about. But when I was at university, I, I was good at maths and physics, and uh, you know I was I was really good at, uh, at 
at it until I got to university where I was still really good, but I came across some people who were so much better than mm. I was. It, it was a real eye-opener. Interestingly for me, not in a depressing way, in, in a sort of, wow, that's amazing. It's almost like you see a magician that does things that you think that's absolutely incredible. So, you know, there, there was one particular chap, a mathematician, he thought I was at the same level as he was. So he would say, let's go and, you know, stand in front of a blackboard as it was then and solve maths and all the rest of it. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I was just looking on in absolute amazement at, at his ability. And that told me that, I wasn't going to be a research physicist. That wasn't in my future because mm -hmm. I was just nowhere near the level that you needed to be. But as we'd gone through the physics course, I'd come across computers uh, and got fascinated by them. And so when I had come back to England and was kicking off my career, um, I just plunged myself into the world of computers and computing. Uh, and that's where I've been ever since. So that would have been computers. I'm doing some quick maths in my in my <laughs> mind here, but I'm guessing that would have been the early mid eighties. Um, yes. So yes. really, right at the um, early stages of of computers. Um, yeah. do, do you did you did you see did you kind of foresee the the massive impact that uh, computing technology was going to have or was it you know that the interest that drove you to that it was it was the interest uh, really I can't say that I I sort of looked at it and thought gosh this is going to change the world I need mm. to be part of it it was more a case of this is absolutely fascinating I remember saying to my children who are now in their 20s uh, uh, once I, I was saying uh, we, we didn't really use the uh, the internet so much when I was at university and email and so forth because it hadn't been invented yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they, were, they were sort of amazed how do you go to university when the internet doesn't exist <laughs> and how did people tell you what to do if they couldn't send you an email <laughs> so uh, anyway that was my time and you know I was I was really at the very early uh, early stages of computing coming into the commercial world. So mm -hmm. working at British Airways on huge mainframe computers, writing very complicated assembler code. Um, uh, you know, that, that was where I started out. But it was fascination uh, rather than uh, foresight, I would say. <laughs> That's very honest. And um, what, uh, what caused you or drove you to set up your your first business you've explained you yeah. had an entrepreneurial flair was it as simple as that um it was in a sense it was as simple as that in the sense that i suppose at some stage i was going to go down the entrepreneurial route and it was a question of when and how but what i had wanted to do was to in a sense prove myself um, in corporate life. So I spent quite a lot of my time um, going for, you know, sort of getting corporate jobs. So I worked at the London Stock Exchange. I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Back then it was Coopers and Librand. It's become PricewaterhouseCoopers. I worked at Goldman Sachs, um, at Capgemini. So I worked at these mm. big corporate companies. Um, and part of it was to gain experience and build up a network and relationships. There was also an element of it that was 
sort of trying to prove to myself that I was good enough to work at these companies. Mm. Um, and when I got to sort of early 30s, I sort of thought, I've done that now. There, there aren't really any other companies that I particularly want to work for that I feel I need to prove myself against. I think I'm ready now to start setting up my own company. And, uh, and that's what led me to setting up my first uh, software company. Uh, and as I went on that entrepreneurial journey, I realized that the part of setting up a company that I really like is the early stages. I, I love the challenge of sitting there with a blank sheet of paper and just a bit of an idea and thinking, how do you bring that to life? And, and then a year or two years or three years later, there's an actual company that employs people, that delivers products and services. Uh, and I sit there thinking, that's amazing. There didn't <laughs> used to be a company and now there is. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. fascinating. And it and it, it it isn't it is different. Well, it feels to me like it's different skill sets, or you you certainly have to draw on different sides of your mm -hmm. your own talents and abilities. I think isn't it? from from being the startup person to being the CEO and 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 running a business. And maybe yeah. maybe we'll we'll come back and talk a little bit more ab about that. But um, you you mentioned your your corporate life, and um, again. Uh, listening to your uh, Desert Island disc, you spoke about some pretty appalling racism that you faced uh, as a young man uh, working in the city. Um, and I, I guess prejudice. Uh, you, and you speak about kind of armoring up. Can, can you tell me a, a bit more about that and how you feel the workplace may have changed? Yeah. Um... I mean, I, I grew up in London in the 70s, and for a, a young black boy in London in the 70s was a pretty tough place to be. Um, and, and so the funny thing is that even though when I sometimes recount stories of incidents that happened to me in the workplace in the 80s and 90s, and people today are very shocked by them and sort of say, oh my goodness, that's, yeah, that's incredible and so forth. Uh, it, 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 because I came from the 70s, mm -hmm. it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't, it was yeah. sort of like, oh, is that the best you've got kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've actually been chased down the street by racist thugs, mm -hmm. then being in an office and someone saying some outrageous thing to you, probably doesn't feel quite as bad as if you've never experienced that stuff before. But I did experience um, some you know, very explicit uh, racism and some implicit uh, issues uh, over, over my career. Um, and you kind of develop tactics as to how you're going to deal with them and which ones you deal with, which ones you let pass. You can't you can't deal with all of them. Mm. Yeah, this is yeah, if you if you tried to uh, if if you tried to fight every single issue that pops up in front of you, you you as an individual one would just spend your whole time yeah in a state of uh, sort of anger and battle, mm. uh, and it would get in the way of uh, of achieving what you want to achieve. So one of the things I learned fairly early on is that you have to 
pick your battles and you have to keep your eye on what you're trying to achieve, where you're trying to get to uh, and not get distracted. There's a, one of the things I learned in my time living in different parts of Africa is that there are lots of great proverbs that, that tell you little stories that have quite strong messages behind them. And one of the stories was, um, uh, or one of the proverbs is, uh, the hunter on the elephant's trail does not stop to throw stones at birds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I quite like that one. You know, if, I've, if I know where I'm going and where I'm trying to get to, uh, and you're standing on the sideline shouting nasty things at me, mm. I, if it doesn't help me to, to deal with that, then I'm just going to ignore you and, and get on with it. If it is important to me uh, in order to deal with that, then I will definitely turn in your direction and we'll, we'll have a conversation about yeah. it in one form or another. That's a really mature way of looking at that. And, you know, the, it, what you've also explained there, um, that kind of evolution, as you say, you know, from 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties to, to where we are now, you, things don't change overnight. It, it is a slow evolution. It can sometimes yeah. feel like we go backwards before we go forwards again. And um, y- 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 without wishing to at all use up your your comments I, I guess that's a little bit like the kind of me too kind of conversations for women in the workplace you know things have evolved when I was working in the 80s it was very normal to uh, to um, be on the receiving end of um, sexist comments or what, whatever it might be mm. I would be much more horrified these days so I yes I I, I I take your point you didn't suddenly just land into that racist environment. Do, do you perceive changes happening? Yes, yes. There, there's there's been a lot of uh, a lot of change. You know, it's there are still there are still challenges to wrestle with, uh, and um, and they need to be wrestled with in different ways. Um, but things, you know, if you look at the broad arc things have definitely moved on you know my my father came to england in the 1950s i think 1956 or 57 uh, he was a, a soldier and um, a young soldier and came and jo- uh, was part of the uh, uh, the army apprentice school up in harrogate in north yorkshire uh, and you can imagine being and he was a very dark black Nigerian man, um, young man, 16 years old, suddenly finds himself in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. Um, you know, the, the things that he experienced uh, make anything that I experienced look like a walk in the park. Yeah. Um, the things that I've experienced make the issues that my children are experiencing look a bit like a walk in the park, uh, but they are still experiencing things and if you look at it as a, a, a long arc, then it's definitely getting better from generation to generation. But in that individual moment, when one individual is faced with a comment or an issue, uh, it doesn't feel like that to them. That, that, in, that issue or comment or incident is very real to that individual. So you can't kind of dismiss that particular point in time and say oh well it doesn't matter because everything's Mm. getting a whole lot better Mm. um but it is possible to look at the look at the broader perspective uh, and see that 
things are moving gradually in the right direction. At times you'd like them to move a lot faster, um, but overall, it, it, to my mind, uh, it, they're, they're moving in the right direction. Mm, that's, that's definitely good to hear and, and I think is, is what I also perceive. Um, one thing that is striking to me, Tom, is that the importance of education seems to be a constant through your journey and you founded a school in Hammersmith, I believe, and the African Science Academy in 2016. Um, my question really is why, why STEM and why uh, specifically for your African school girls? Yeah, uh, when I had when I decided that I was going to start getting involved in philanthropy um, uh, and I'd had a reasonably by then successful both corporate and entrepreneurial career and I was thinking about how and where to give back I suppose I went about it in quite an entrepreneurial way which is to say that I decided to be focused I decided that rather than giving a little bit of money here and a bit there and responding to a request uh, and uh, getting excited about an issue and then dropping it again, instead of taking that kind of approach, which is a perfectly valid approach. Mm. For me, I would pick an area and I would focus my efforts on that area. Um, so given that STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, given that the whole, my whole success has been built on technology and my personal interest is around science and physics and uh, and so forth um i decided right whatever i do that is going to be the core of it um my mother was a teacher um, for many, many years here in the UK, in Uganda, in Nigeria, back in the UK, thousands uh, of students must have uh, been taught by her over her 30 plus year career. So education uh, was always part of our lives. And from time to time, we lived in school compounds because she would have a, a house in a school compound. So education was very much part of what we did. And, and through my career as I was coming up, um, when I got to the stage where I was being asked to speak at events, I was often being asked to speak at school events. And I really enjoy speaking at school uh, events, secondary school events, because the impact that you can have, actually, it's, it can go both ways. When you're talking to teenagers in a secondary school, if you're boring and irrelevant, they will literally fall asleep in front of you. <laughs> Whereas, whereas if you're interesting and saying something that makes a difference, they will be staring at you with eyes wide open and you can tell that you're having a direct impact uh, on them. So the feedback there that you get, positive or negative, is immediate and real uh, and it's quite challenging uh, mm. in both respects. Um, and, and so that's what I love. So I decided as I got into philanthropy, I was going to focus on secondary schools and I was going to focus on STEM subjects. And that mm -hmm. led to the creation of Hammersmith Academy. That led to me chairing 
the UK's National College for Digital Skills, which is called Ada College in, in Tottenham. Uh, uh, that led to me helping to transform Lillian Bailey's school in, in Lambeth into Lillian Bailey's Technology School uh, and making it one of the best schools in, in London. And then eventually that led me to create my Africa charity, the African Gifted Foundation. And we eventually set up five years ago, the All Girls Africa Science Academy, which is a school for young women from across Africa to come and study maths and physics and computing on full scholarships and then go off to university all over the world. We decided we were going to make it for women only because we wanted an environment that if you were a young woman who was exceptionally academically gifted, you know, the brain power of an Einstein, but you happen to have been born into a village or a township or a city in some part of Africa and didn't necessarily have your family, you or your family didn't have the financial um, ability to really leverage your, your academic gift, that's who we're looking for. We're looking for those young women who have that ability uh, to have a real impact, but don't have the support necessarily to make it uh, make it happen. And that's the school that we've created. Uh, that picture you just painted of those super bright young girls um, in villages across Africa kind of really makes me stop and think about how... Um, kind of more traditional approaches to education you know potentially we miss out don't we on such talented individuals if somebody isn't given isn't spotted and given that opportunity and uh um you know it isn't you know not just life-changing for that individual but but i'm mm. sure it has an ability to actually impact on uh, whole villages and communities of people um, back back in Africa, um, yeah, in, you know, thereafter. Yeah. yeah, I think I think I had that. I mean, my father was extremely intelligent. Um, uh, you know, really. I mean, that's that's why he he got to where he got to. But he he started out in the smallest of of villages in Nigeria. Yeah, just if if you. If you see the pictures of people driving in uh, in parts of Africa, and you see young children by the side of the road that that really don't have much at all, one of them would have been my father. Mm. Uh, that was the sort of environment he mm. came from, and yet there yeah i've met a lot of people in my career as a as a technologist in here in silicon valley in china all over the world um he would still be one of the cleverest people intellectually one of the cleverest people that i've that i've ever met and and known um and so what that gives me is the perspective that when when i look at a group of girls playing in a village, I, I know that there's no reason why one of them might, might or might not be the very smartest person you've ever met. Mm. Um, uh, where, uh, and I think other people can sort of look at them in other ways and say, oh, well, these are people that need to be helped along a bit and maybe they can learn to read and this, that and the other. You know, I, mm. I can look at them and I can think, 
one of those could probably do, you know, uh, quantum physics better than I could, mm. if only someone gave them the chance to. Uh, and therefore, that's what we're doing. We're giving them the chance. And our, our girls, they come to us and they do A-levels. They are So they effectively, they would have done GCSEs somewhere uh, and probably not at a particularly good school because of their backgrounds. But then they come to us and they do A-levels, the Cambridge International A-levels in maths, further maths and physics. Uh, so really sort of hard set of A-levels and they do them in under 12 months from start to finish. Um, and they all pass, all of them pass and almost all of them get A's, A stars, A's or B's. And then almost all of them have got scholarships to universities all over Africa and all over the world. So it's just fascinating to, to see. And, and what we're doing is both impacting their lives, but by the way that we're doing it, I think we're also trying to change some of the narrative about what it means to be a young African woman, you know, it's, it's saying, why not be a nuclear physicist? Why not be a top computer scientist? You know, why not be an aeronautical engineer? Because here's an example of tens, hundreds now of young women uh, coming through the Africa Science Academy who are doing exactly that. Such expansive thinking. It, you know, it's, um, yeah, and exactly, why not? I, it, it's such a brilliant question to ask and start to develop those those young women who can be role models for others. It's such a such an important thing to do and to absolutely change the narratives that we 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 the assumptions that we make about the educational abilities or otherwise of people who might not look like us. Um, a question I'd love to ask you, Tom. Um, I've been a financial planner for years and I've been lucky enough to to uh, talk to a number of clients who are have got more than enough for their own lives and to set their children up well. And I've always struggled with opening a conversation around philanthropy or giving. Um, and I kind of look inwards and I wonder why that is. And I think it might be because I feel a little bit like I don't want that person on the other side of the table to feel that I'm in somehow making a judgment about their choice to give or not to give. Um, but I wonder how you see the subject of philanthropy and if you were, uh, how might you help me or other people within the financial planning profession kind of open up those conversations? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that um, I would suggest that you might want to find other philanthropists and have them share their share their stories. Um, so I suppose if I was doing it, I'd probably be saying to the person across the table, um, yeah, "Ah, you remind me of." Sue or or Jim or whoever it was, mm. their you know, their financial affairs are very similar to your financial affairs. Actually, they're doing some interesting things in philanthropy uh, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, you might do you want to have a look at what they're doing and see whether it sparks any ideas uh, for you? Because what you find with successful people, they will often want to be successful in whatever field they get into. So it, it it's just 
it's just a new challenge to them. Mm. Uh, and, um, uh, and so if they've had a great challenge in their business career uh, and then they think about where they can have an impact, um, you're, you're almost kind of asking them, what sort of impact do they want to, they want to have in, uh, in their lives? A lot of entrepreneurs are, are, are fighting to, to make a dent in, in the world, in the universe, in some way, you know, whether they're successful or not. They're not actually doing it to try and make as much money as possible. You know, some are, but, uh, and, and if entrepreneurs do, then, then that's, that's great. There's no problem with that. But often what they're doing is they, they want to have an impact. And if that impact turns out to be their philanthropic activities, then that's perfectly fine and legitimate as well. So mm. I don't think that there's any reason to sort of lean back from, from that conversation. Mm. And I don't actually think that the person on the other side of the table will particularly see it as a, as a, a, a judgment. Um, it's, mm. it's just uh, another another conversation that comes in into the mix and and it's often quite welcome and yeah. often what they're you know what they're what they're doing you know they they are probably most wealthy people or reasonably wealthy people are doing some sort of philanthropy even if it's in a very haphazard way they're they're giving you know a few hundred pounds here a few thousand pounds here um mm. uh, to causes uh, and in a sense, what you might be helping them do is just get some shape on that, what mm. matters to them. Mm. Um, yeah, and the, often the guilt I find can come when you know you have resources and there are so many ways in which you could um, give. There are so many causes that you, you, you almost feel helpless and you feel guilty that you're not helping everyone. Yeah. Uh, and so if someone can help shape that for you and say, you know, it isn't your job to help everyone. You're, you, what, what you should do is think about what matters to you because it's much better if this is sustainable for the long term. So what matters to you now and will continue to matter to you for the next five, ten years, and then focus your philanthropy on that and don't worry about the other stuff because on the one hand, there'll be other wealthy people that worry about the other stuff and they focus there. And on the other hand, the example of what you're doing will inspire some other people to act in those other areas. So it's almost better that you do what you do about something you're passionate about and let people see that you're doing it and that will inspire others to follow your example. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. And 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 you, yeah, my my brain is racing, and I can I absolutely see. You know, it, it's an enabling conversation, isn't it, rather than um, than anything else. And uh, yeah, no, that's that's super helpful to understand. Thank you. And uh, that idea of focus, like many things in business, isn't it? Is you know, in life, is uh, is is particularly pertinent. I think given. The, the number of charities and challenges that, that are out there. Um, now, Tom, I must uh, uh, ask, you You have fairly recently become the chair of the Rugby Football Union and the first black man to be chair of a major sporting association. 
Um, I'd love to know how that came about and also what are the key challenges you and the board are working on? So I started playing rugby when I was probably about 10 years old. Um, I, I, I live in Richmond and our local, well, one of our local clubs was uh, is London Welsh. So I played down at London Welsh uh, in, my, in my early teens and uh, this was in the 70s. That was a, a really fun time to be playing. I went abroad and didn't play much then and I played a bit again when I came back in my 20s. Uh, my son then played for uh, 17 years and I've so I've been a touchline dad for a long long time um, and I'd and so rugby has always been part of my life and my elder brother played as well and so forth so it's always been part of my life um, I'd sat on a few boards I'd been on the board of the BBC I've been on various other boards and I was approached about applying to be chair of the RFU, the Rugby Football Union, um, and thought that that would be a really fascinating role to take on and one in which I felt I could make a real contribution um, because I come from the community rugby world. Um, that, that is what I know and, uh, and love. Um, I also bring experience as an entrepreneur and an innovator uh, and there's a lot that needs to happen in the sports world in general and in rugby um, around uh, uh, being entrepreneurial, getting larger fan bases in, using technology in interesting ways. Um, there's also a fair amount of new money coming into rugby, uh, private equity investment coming into rugby uh, and with my background in running private equity and venture capital backed companies, uh, I'm well positioned to really understand that world, uh, understand the motivations and how you deal with those sorts of uh, folk. Um, I think for us as a board, what we're doing is looking forwards, we're looking over the next 10 years and really asking ourselves what we want rugby to look like over the next 10 years, how big a sport can it be? The rise of the women's game is really exciting. Um, there's just huge opportunities there. About 40,000 adult women play rugby in the UK now, and we oh. think that that can grow to 100,000 by 2027. Mm. We're also the preferred bidder for the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2025 so if we manage to bring that to England that will just be an amazing set of events across the UK and uh, as part of that at some point we want to fill Twickenham Stadium for uh, an England women's match um, with 82,000 fans wow. which would just be yeah. uh, incredible so there are just so many uh, opportunities. We want to open up the sport, make it more inclusive uh, and diverse because it's such a strong sport in terms of values and teamwork and, and so forth. We want to do more uh, on that front. We want to make it a sport that it is as safe as it can be and just stay on top of, uh, of all the issues and adjust uh, the uh, uh, you know, things in the game to make sure that uh, it continues to be a, a strong but uh, but safe sport. And so it's just a fascinating time to be involved in rugby. 
It really is. Yeah, there, I, I can I can sense the excitement, and I'd love to be part of that eighty thousand strong crowd at uh, at Twickenham. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for that. It uh, sounds so, like an awesome yeah. event. Um, Tom, we're, we're pretty much coming to the end of the podcast, and I I have two questions I always ask all my guests. But before I do that, I'd just like to ask you: What does real success look like to you? What What does it mean, and why? Um. I think that, well, for me, real success, <laughs> it, it looks like I can, uh, I can just sit back in my house and do puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really bother with cars and this that and the other it's it's just not not what i do uh, i've i've got enough money to be comfortable i don't need you know, loads more um so for me it's about just being comfortable in in myself and 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 having having the ability to I, I hope at one point that I'm able to just sort of sit there and look around at what I've done over my career and sort of nod and say, that's not too bad. Mm. Then that's what success looks like for mm. me. Lovely. I love that. Brilliant. Um, Tom, a, a couple of final questions, if I may. Um, a slightly frivolous one, which I love to ask people because I think it, it just tells us something that we wouldn't otherwise get to. But what's been your best buy for under, say, £30 in the last year or so and why? Oh, gosh, in the last year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> could be a, it could be a puzzle. I'm listening to what you've just <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I fear that it, it it might be a puzzle to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, that's what I, you know, that I've, yeah, probably for that amount of money, that is probably my best buy. I bought a, uh, a three thousand piece puzzle, and I think it took me about four months oh, to goodness. do. My wife was so fed up, and I get it <laughs> off the table, please. Um, but when you've got, uh, I don't know if you've you've done puzzles, but when when you've got a thousand pieces of blue sky that you've got to figure out how to fit together <laughs> it's it's uh, and then when you get down you know when you're at 2999 <laughs> and you slot in the last piece the uh, <laughs> it is it is so satisfying well that's the bit that's satisfying for me and then my wife comes along and smashes up the puzzle <laughs> so i think we both derive a huge amount of enjoyment for 30 pounds i get three months of carefully putting it together and she gets 30 seconds of smashing the whole thing up <laughs> i've got a good picture of your relationship right there <laughs> And finally, Tom, we like to leave our listeners with what I, I call a money pearl of wisdom. Um, what what have, has been one of your money lessons that you think is worthy of passing on or has stood you in good stead? I, I, think, I think it would be this. Few things can bring you more joy than giving money away to a cause that touches your heart. Mm. That would be it. The, you know, if anything else I've done just hasn't had the same impact as, as doing that. It's really fascinating. I, and y y there is some recent research that 
that looks at the pleasure that people get from giving. And it, it's fascinating to see that win-win situation that the benefactors receive and the, the giver also gets possibly even a greater enhanced sense of satisfaction from the, from the very act. So that very much resonates and what a beautiful place to end our conversation, Tom. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being so open and sharing. Um, and I wish you all the very best with all of your endeavours, um, whether that's in the philanthropy space or at the RFU or indeed in your own business, which I'm sorry we didn't get time to talk about. But, um, um, but thank you once again for the, for the time that you've given us today. Thank you very much for having me. goodness, I could have talked to Tom for hours. What an interesting guy. I was totally absorbed in all he had to say, but there, there were a few things I think that really resonated with me. One of them being his uh, experiences of racism in the 70s and how he had to armour up and pick his battles. And I think that was really encapsulated in his use of that lovely African proverb, proverb uh, the hunter on the elephant's trail does not stop to throw stones at birds. And he refers to the long arc of change. And I think that's certainly true, isn't it? And one that we cannot take for granted when we talk about the hard-earned rights of many and how they can be taken away if we don't remain vigilant, not to mention what's currently going on in the US. Now, I also hugely admire the work that Tom and his foundation are doing to change the narrative around young women in Africa. And that truism, again, that intelligence is everywhere, it's opportunity that isn't. And I guess finally, I, um, the tips he gave me for framing better conversations around giving, hugely useful. It's something that I've always struggled with uh, when I was a financial planner. Now, before you go, just a gentle tease about our next show. It's a special edition. I'll say no more for now, but just listen out for it. So once again, thank you for listening. Um, have a great rest of the day and cheerio for now. So that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you did, I'd really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform to subscribe, rate, and review Money Expresso. This helps more people find the podcast so we can get more people thinking differently about their money and life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Now, of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is merely to share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Mm-hmm.